was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so happy to welcome my guest, Broadway choreographer Liza Gennaro, author of the new book, Making Broadway Dance, now available from Oxford University Press. In addition to writing this wonderful and informative book, she has appeared on Broadway in Carmelina, American Dance Machine, and The Music Man. She served the role of assistant choreographer on the Three Penny Opera, Smile, and Annie Too, and choreographed the revivals of The Most Happy Fella and Once Upon a Mattress featuring Sarah Jessica Parker. She's also spearheaded many regional productions, including Gypsy with Karen Mason, Annie, Ragtime, and Kiss Me Kate. She also serves as the Dean of Musical Theatre at the Manhattan School of Music. So now, without further ado, Liza Gennaro. So, I'd love to um, to start by asking how you first became interested in theater. Well, I come from a theatrical background. My father was a choreographer, a Tony Award-winning choreographer. He had extensive career in um, television and as well on uh, stage. He did a film. And my mother was also a dancer. My mother had danced with... Um, Michael Kidd and Agnes DeMille on Broadway, but prior to that, she had been a classical ballerina. So I came to it kind of naturally. It was the family business, and um, they encouraged me to dance. I think I was taken to a ballet class when I was nine, and I sort of took to it. Um, not immediately, but eventually I came to really love it, and I, that's how I started. And what were some of the early shows you saw? Were they mostly your father's shows or were they? Not, no, not mostly. My parents were avid theater goers. They went to see everything. So they would take me to an enormous amount of dance. Um, I saw, you know, very early company, um, Alvin Ailey, um, Dance Theater of Harlem, um, the Stuttgart Ballet, which was a phenomenal uh, company from Stuttgart with a choreographer named John Cranko, who did brilliant, brilliant ballets. And of course, the Joffrey Ballet was very, very popular at that time. And I went to see, um, they did some beautiful work, all sorts of great work and some great reconstructions of dances. Um, and then with the theater, I mean, I, I saw it everything continually in dance. And then with um, the shows, I think the first show I saw, if I recall correctly, was Oliver. Oh. Um, yeah, and I have, I don't have a lot of memories of it. I must have been very young. <clears throat> but I do remember the scene, it probably was scary to me when he's in his kind of den um, uh, singing and going through his his chest of jewels and possessions. Uh, that made a big impression on me. And I also remember Henry Sweet Henry I saw. Um, 
and I have a very clear memory of the girls in the show and uh, the lead who wore up like a thrift shop fur coat throughout the show. I have a very clear memory of her. And then I started going on my own when I was a teenager. I have a brother, Michael, who's also in the theater and um, has run many theaters um, over the years, including Steppenwolf and um, most recently Goodspeed Opera House. Um, and we would go sometimes. And I remember clearly with him seeing a little night music, which was quite an extraordinary experience, um, gorgeous production. And then I think the show that made the biggest impression on me was A Chorus Line. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so did seeing these shows, did this help you in writing your book for the, the choreographers whose work you'd seen? Did that affect? I think it helped me in terms of being so surrounded and immersed with choreographers my entire life, <clears throat> both in my family and being exposed to so many wonderful choreographers. Um, I have a very good eye for choreography and I had kind of a natural, I think, ability to analyze choreography. Um, and when I went to grad school, and I went to grad school late because I went to professional children's school for high school in the city and then I worked immediately. And I actually was working through high school and then I worked immediately. So I didn't go to college until I was honestly in my 40s. Um, and then I did my graduate degree. And when I was doing my graduate degree, I knew that I wanted to do something with musical theater dance and something with musical theater choreography. But I wasn't quite sure what. Um, and so as I started to look at the literature, I began to understand that a lot of the literature that we had around the house, although it was wonderful, was very outdated. And so I started looking at literature more in the area of dance studies, which is a different kind of analysis. Um, and when I started doing that, I started to realize there really was no analysis of musical theater dance, or I should say not no, but very little. And certainly not in the way that I felt it needed to be done, which was, first of all, I feel that musical theater dance is a specific and unique dance art form within the umbrella of dance. Um, and I really wanted to get to that and show, talk about the influences of the avant-garde and downtown theater on um, musical theater dance, to look at the evolution of it, how it changed over the years, to really look at and unpack what did Agnes DeMille do? Why is Agnes DeMille so important? And there's a lot of myth, there's been a lot of mythology out there about um, publicity, really, about first dream ballet, first psychological ballet. And if you really look at those things, they're not true. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of stuff. So that's really what I wanted to do was kind of get to the core of what is this art form, how do people make it, and and um, what were the influences upon it? So I think that having all that history going back to the 1960s of having seen so much dance and theater, it, it gave me an appreciation for the form that I, I felt um, passionate about um, 
making it clear what the form was and kind of also understanding my own personal fascination with it. Why was it so interesting to me? And how do you think that Broadway dance fits into the sort of dance landscape as a whole or how is it considered within? Well, it's considered as the ugly stepsister, honestly. I mean, it's been until very recently, uh, it's been certainly within dance studies. It was like, oh yeah, and then there's these musical theater dance choreographers who, you know, like are dabbling in this thing that is just ridiculous. But so, so for me, it was about figuring out, well, what is it that these choreographers really can do that other choreographers can't do? or choose, not even can't do, choose not to do. And a lot of it is um, narrative dance. What is narrative dance? Which was very popular in the 1940s and then in postmodern dance became less and less of interest. But also what, what about it made it very, um, what about it made it interesting within that context, within the larger context of dance, which I think had a lot to do with working within the parameters of a given libretto. So you have, you're walking, musical theaters walk into an environment where you have, the book is written, the sets are often designed or at least somewhat designed, the costumes are already decided, and there's an enormous amount music is written, the lyrics are written, the amount that's already done. So what is what does that choreographer do to fit into that world? And that's very different from ballet choreographers, concert dance choreographers, who, who are in charge of the entire picture, the entire mise-en-scene. They are completely in control. Musical theater choreographers have to fit in. And of course, Theater is a collaborative art form, but for the musical theater choreographer, it's really about translating the ideas of the libretto and the director's vision into dance. And so there's a chapter in your book on director choreographers. And so is that something I'd be curious that you've ever considered? Do you enjoy directing or? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I never wanted to direct. I feel that it's a really different set of skills. Um, I feel my expressive voice is dance. I was, al was always dance. And language um, and working with actors and guiding actors through character development and whatnot it was just not interesting to me. I, it wouldn't hold my interest. Um, so it was not anything that I was ever interested in pursuing. Sometimes I've had a listing as a director, but it's more sort of, um, I did a thing for first for the New York Pops at Carnegie Hall and then at San Francisco Symphony. It's being being done year after year. It's a Charlie Brown Christmas and it's kind of a dance pantomime. So it's using the music from the Charles Schultz cartoon and um, telling the story through dance. So I think I'm listed as director choreographer in that sense, but in terms of a real director who deals with text and scenes, that's not something that I ever felt that interested to pursue or really thought I would be very good at. And 
are, are there Broadway choreographers who you think made the wrong choice by becoming directors? For instance, like, um, like Agnes DeMille's, let's say, Come Summer was far less successful than? Yeah. Well, Agnes DeMille, as I, as I talk about in the book, that was a tricky situation with her because she was so astute. She was so brilliant. She was so genius at narrative point of view, perspective. And yet she never really had success as a director. And in the book, I posit that it, what contributed to that was sexism. Um, you know, she was working at a period, I mean, DeMille's really hot period was like 43 to 45-ish. Then she got a bit repetitive in terms of what she did. She still had some big successes and her work was always excellent, but it wasn't like Robbins who comes in like, I don't know, a year and a half or something after DeMille with On the Town and just takes over and continues until he decides to stop. DeMille became of less interest to people, even choreographically less interesting to people. Um, whereas Robbins, Robbins really decided not to do it anymore. So I think that DeMille, I think the combination of being a brilliant, um, forceful, strong, sometimes I imagine acerbic woman worked against her at that period of time. I think people were just not ready for that. I'm not even sure still how ready they are for it, but um, certainly we're, we're getting there. But it's been a long, it's been a long journey of a very male dominated form, white male dominated form. And have you experienced sexism in your own career as a choreographer? I mean, you know, it's hard when you're looking at yourself. I always tend to think everything's my fault. <laughs> so I'm hesitant to point fingers because I'm always fully, I'm ready kind of too much, I think, to take responsibility. But um, I mean, I'm sure that there were instances of that, um, uh, I can't like think of any particular instances that I could retell. Um, yeah. I had a child, I have a child, a daughter who's now 27 already. Um, but when I was choreographing a lot, she was a baby and I dragged her around with me everywhere. And I don't think that helped my career having a oh. child on my hip all the time. Um, so women make different um, decisions my decision was I really wanted to be a hands-on parent. Um, but now I think that's also changing. Uh, a lot of women in our industry are making a lot of, you know, very positive and rightful demands on lifestyle. And if I have a child, you know, I don't know if you saw um, when the shows were all coming back, you know, within the pandemic still, but when like Hades Town and everyone was coming back, uh, reopening, there was a great picture in the New York Times of Rachel Chavkin, who directed Hades Town, with her baby in a um, baby carrier uh, in rehearsal. And I remember thinking, wow, that's progress. Cause that could never have, that would not have happened when I was choreographing. So um, in that sense, I mean, I, I think it's, an, I think there's always sexism, there's always racism, there's always all sorts of isms. So I'm sure that, you know, I had, there were examples of that in my career, 
but at the time it wasn't something you try not to dwell on it or even acknowledge it honestly you just kind of kept trying to forge through as best you could and so I would love to um, go back in your career a little bit to ask you about American Dance Machine, which was your Broadway debut. Yeah, I'm not sure if it was my Broadway debut. I, oh. I feel like I did Carmelina first. I think this was first, according to the IBDB. Oh, maybe so Dance Machine was first. Okay. Um, yeah, so Dance Machine, this was the original Dance Machine, not the one that's currently happening now. Um, this was back in 1977, I guess. And Lee Theodore, who had been the original Anybody's in West Side Story, Lee Becker was her maiden name. She had this idea to start a company that would um, recreate numbers from the golden age of the American musical. And she had Agnes DeMille very eager to work with her. She had Gwen Verdon was involved with the Jack Cole material and some other of Jack Cole's dancers, Ethel Martin and George Martin and Florence Lessing. Um, and then we worked with a lot of like the, the dance captains on the original shows, like the dance captain from the original Cabaret and the dance, one of the dance captains from Can Can. So we were just a very young group of dancers that she, Lee collected and we rehearsed, we worked probably a year before we had a performance. I think our first performance was at the John Drew in East Hampton. And we learned all of this phenomenal choreography. Um, and I, I was very young, I was a teenager still. Um, I was out of high school, but I was young. Um, and I loved, the process of the recreation and the reconstructions. Um, Jemsey Delap was very, was the recreator for DeMille. And then she would set it and then DeMille would come in and work with us. And being in the room with DeMille and her use of imagery and how she would talk about what the movements meant and what you as the dancer, who you, what your character was and what you were meant to be expressing that was a brilliant education. Um, and we just worked with, you know, fabulous, fabulous people. And then I guess after the John Drew, I feel like we went to Ford's Theater and we had a couple of runs down there. And then we came into New York and the Century Theater, which I think was on 46th Street, maybe. It's a hotel and it was like the basement of the hotel. It was a strange space. Um, but it was successful. Critics, critics really loved the idea of it. Yeah. And, yeah. And um, shortly thereafter, Jerome Robbins did his Jerome Robbins Broadway. And, uh, you know, I think he probably, well, he and Lee had a close relationship anyway, but I think that he probably was watching to see what would happen with it, you know, and then kind of thought to do his own thing. And of course, his was fabulous and brilliantly produced much more so than Dance Machine was. But at one point, um, Robbins gave Lee a kinescope film of the Bathing Beauty Ballet from the Max Sennett Ballet from High Button Shoes. And it was from the original production. Wow. And it was a mess. It was hard to see and it had these big gaps in it where you kind of couldn't 
follow what was happening. Um, had big gaps in it. You kind of couldn't see what was happening. And then it would suddenly you'd be in the next section. And she gave it to me and another dancer, a close friend of mine who was in the company, who at the time was named Larry Hyman. He has changed since his name is now Yehuda Hyman. He's a wonderful performer, actor, dancer, writer, um, and playwright. And he and I were put in a studio to try to recreate it. And we tried and tried and tried, and we like got as much of it as we could together, but we never could get enough because the video just didn't have it. So then when they did the Jerome Robbins Broadway, they did do it. I think he must have found, in addition to the tape, he must have found some dance captains who had some original notes, and they must have been able to, because I know that he brought in all sorts of people into that, into those rehearsals to remember anything they could possibly remember. So he must have done that, and it, and it's it's a brilliant, brilliant number. We also recreated a number of Carol Haney's that had she had choreographed Funny Girl, and I think she choreographed She Loves Me also, and one brilliant performer um, and dancer, phenomenal dancer. She had done a thing to Satin Doll that. Um, I know I was one of the recreators and might have, I don't remember if Yehuda was with the company at that point, but um, Patty Mariano, another great dancer, Broadway person, she might have been in on that recreation. So I was, I was in on some of those recreation. I think that Lee detected that I had an eye for that and that I could kind of take things off of a film, which is sort of like, I, like myself, I've had dancers do that for me. You sort of know when a dancer can do that. Um, it's sort of a special skill, I think. So anyway, it was great. It was just a great experience. And how was it chosen within the company who would get to do which which number? That's a great question. Um, <laughs> and very uh, angsty. Um, you know, I think that the reconstructionists along with Lee made those decisions. I wasn't really, well, I was in Satin Doll, which was a trio. So that was kind of a special thing that I did. Other than that, I don't, oh, and I was also in the Four Cohans, which was um, from George M, was like a, a tap number of the four, the four family members. But other than that, I didn't really have any specialties, but I was in every number. So I was kind of the workhorse of the company. I was in every single number. But, um, you know, Lee could be tricky. She would kind of play us against each other and she would sometimes cast somebody and then take it away from you and give it to somebody else. So there was some of that game playing going on with her. But um, I'm sure, and then sometimes she would bring in a star, um, Janet Elber, who is now running the Martha Graham Company, but who was with the Martha Graham Company at the time, fantastic dancer. She kind of transitioned at one point into kind of musical theater, not entirely, but a bit. And she came in and she did, um, a, she, he, she gave, uh, Lee gave her a bunch of the leads in different numbers. So it would, it just sort of depended how, if we were on the skeleton company, then those of us who were kind of the mainstay of the company, we got to do more. And then if a star came in, it kind of got taken away. But even within the company, she would kind of play around and take things away from people. Yeah. She yeah. was tricky personality, oh. brilliant dancer, 
brilliant teacher, really brilliant teacher, but uh, very complicated, could be very, very mean, um, kind of terrorized the dancers, um, all of us. <laughs> but, you know, she... And she, she often, she had a great idea with that company. Unfortunately, I don't think she ever really somehow was able to make that company. Um, there's no reason that company didn't have some kind of television airtime. It should have had a tour. It should have been performing internationally. She just never kind of was able to make that happen. I don't know why. Yeah. And so, um, you talk in your book about the phenomenon of the sort of like tricky or almost tyrant choreographer. And so how do you feel about that? Do you feel that that can be necessary to get work done or? Well, in the early part of the 20th century and certainly um, in the 40s and 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, <laughs> it goes on for a long time because I think Michael Bennett could be pretty rough too. It was kind of a model. You know, I think it started with the ballet and the ballet choreographers who were pretty abusive, I think, always. And then it just continued and dancers are trained from childhood to keep their mouths shut and do what they're told. And I think that, you know, that's part of it. Those kind of bullies, unless somebody stands up to them, they're just gonna keep abusing. I mean, in the book, I don't know if we said the name of the book, Making Broadway Dance. Um, uh, there's a, a story about, uh, I, Helen Gallagher told the story about Robbins and how he would, when he would get stuck, he'd get so frustrated. And then the way it would always release was he'd start picking on somebody and he'd, oh, that's my dog. And he'd really have a, like let loose on somebody really aggressively. And that as soon as he did that, then the work would flow. Then he could, then he was back creating again. So I think all of them had different techniques. I mean, it's terrifying to stand in front of a group of dancers and that's your canvas, all these personalities, and you gotta start telling them what to do. It's a really scary moment. And I think that everybody deals with it in different ways. Um, and I know I had heard once that, or I, I think I heard him say it, Bob Fosse said in an interview or something, that he vomited three times a day when he was choreographing. It was just, it, it's a very, very frightening experience because even though, especially I think in the musical theater where they're dancer, singer, actors, or dancer, actor, singers. So they're not as quiet <laughs> as dancer, dancers, maybe. And, you know, you, you will get pushback from dancers a lot of times. Um, and you really have to be prepared and know how to, you have to be a little bit of a psychologist and know how to manage people so that they'll do what you want them to do. Um, and some choreographers, certainly when it was permitted, did it by being abusive and just, you know, Robbins would just humiliate people and, you know, until they, and everybody was desperate to work with him because he was so great, but 
he would really humiliate them. And now, you know, I'm hoping, I don't think you can get away with that so much anymore. I hope not. Um, so choreographers now, well, choreography now is much more collaborative. Um, you know, back in the day of Robbins and DeMille, you didn't make a suggestion. I mean, you know, I, I quote Jerry Gutierrez, wonderful director Jerry Gutierrez, who I had the honor of working with a couple of times. Um, he always would say in a note session, if an actor would say, you know, well, I was thinking I would go there, right? And Jerry would say, oh, I look forward to your production. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it's tough. It's, it's a, I, I while it, while I, disagree with the abusiveness you cannot treat people like that I don't like to live in a tense room it's not comfortable I find it inhibiting in terms of creativity but on the flip side of that I know how hard it is yeah. to be in a room when the when the when the vibe gets tense where people aren't liking what you're doing where you're just trying to get it done because the clock is ticking and the dollars are mounting um I'm sympathetic to it, while at the same time, I think, you know, many of them back in the day went too far. Yeah. And so talking about Jerome Robbins, of course, that brings up your father, Peter Gennaro, a great choreographer. And so what, I'd be curious to know, what sort of advice or insights did he give you about choreography? Well, my father was not a particularly analytical person. Um, he danced you know, he always said it just came out of me. He just was a natural, brilliant dancer. He trained extensively, not until actually after he, 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 um, he was in World War II. He spent uh, his time there in India in a, ended up in India and ended up in a um, theatrical troupe that went around entertaining the soldiers. And then he trained when he got back to the States seriously. Up until then he'd had some training, but not that much. Um, he was so he wasn't he, he he didn't really think about it too much he just sort of did what he did naturally um when i i mean his one piece of advice always when i was first performing and then choreographing was you know just keep working take the job don't be picky just take the job and that was great advice actually because a lot of times it's the you know least high profile jobs that are the most wonderful experiences. Um, and they're great training grounds, uh, especially when you're young. So that was one of his pieces of advice. And I think he really continued that throughout his life. I mean, he did so many different things and he never, he was never particularly choosy about what he did. And he was also not calculating in terms of building his career. Um, I don't know that that was a good thing. Maybe there should be some calculation, but he was not that way. And he did not encourage me to be that way to think, okay, well, I'll do this and then I'll do this and then I'll do this. Um, he was helpful to me. My, my first kind of big choreography job was most happy fella with Jerry Gutierrez. And I had worked with Jerry before when I was assisting, I went through a period when I was assisting my father a lot. Um, and, and my father was the choreographer, Jerry was directing and I was the assistant. And Jerry and I hit it off 
And when Jerry was offered to do The Most Happy Fell at Goodspeed Opera House, he called my father to do it. And my father said, well, I'm not interested, but why don't you call Liza? And he called me and we met and we had hit it off when we worked together and I was the assistant. So I ended up doing it and it was a lucky break for me. Um, and I remember bringing my father in to my pre-production rehearsals to kind of show him some of the stuff I was doing. And he was kind of not particularly helpful. <laughs> he was kind of like, yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. You know, by that point in his career, it was like, oh, just do it, you know. But he, he, the one thing he was interesting about was rhythm. And he would say, you know, you need to complicate that rhythm. At, you know, do, do, do a little more complication rhythmically with that. So he was helpful in those terms. Um, and then, you know, he was very critical of my work, which was hard. Um, I revered him. Um, and we were very connected in many ways. Um, so the criticisms were tough to take, but um, usually helpful, you know, in the long run. And so what was he like as a choreographer when you were assisting him? How did you sort of observe? By the time I was assisting him, he wasn't capable any longer of dancing to the degree he had originally. Okay. Um, and he was very much a choreographer who had to dance it. Um, I've heard Sergio Trujillo say that, where he said, I have to do it. And I was kind of that way too. I, I needed to physically do it. Um, my father was certainly that way. So he really needed me as a body to do the dancing for him and somebody who could kind of know and anticipate what it was going to be before he did it, or just like a, from a basic marking, I could know what it was. Um, so I was very useful to him in that way. <clears throat> I was also useful to him because he was hearing impaired his entire life. He had scarlet fever as a child and lost the hearing in one ear and the other ear he wore a hearing aid. So as he got older, it got worse and he would often miss a lot of what was going on around him. And you know, Broadway shows and I, I guess I, I assisted him on um, Three Penny Opera with Sting, which was kind of a mess. Um, John Dexter directed, it was a mess. And then I also assisted him the other kind of high, sort of high profile was Annie 2 had been done when we were doing Three Penny Opera. So Peter could not do Annie 2 because he was already committed to Three Penny. Then Annie 2 kind of tanked and they took it to Goodspeed, to Chester up at Goodspeed, Chester Theater at Goodspeed, and they reinvented it as Annie Warbucks. And Peter did do that and I did that with him. Um, on both of those shows, as well as the body that could interpret what he wanted um, and to teach the dances for him, I could be his ears. And that was really valuable to him at that point, to have somebody who he really could trust, um, know what was happening in the room, especially on Three Penny Opera, which was so such a difficult experience. To, to be able to keep him aware of what was happening. Um, I, I served a big role with him as that on that show. And so when you were going back and writing this book, it must have been sort of a strange experience to like analyze his works as, as you would Jerome Robbins or anything like that. And so what was that like? 
Yeah. Um, well, it, yeah, you're right. Uh, and, and now I'm writing something for Oxford University Press. Um, Ray Knapp and Raymond Knapp and Jessica Sternfeld are editing a collection of, um, for a book called, I think it's called um, T Musicals and Television, Television Musicals, something like that. It'll probably be out in, I'm guessing, about a year. Um, and I am writing for them a chapter on my father's variety shows. So I've been really digging into them even more than I did on making Broadway dance. Um, and it's really interesting. Because uh, a lot of what my, chore what my analysis of choreography entails is me doing the choreography on my body in my you know, workspace. So like if I could find a piece of DeMille's choreography on a video or if I could find anything that I can ever find, any little snippets, a lot of times I will teach myself the choreography and in the actual doing of it, I can really dig into what's going on in the movement. And with my father, it's easy because I you know, I trained with him and I worked with him. And so I really, really know his style. Um, so that part of it is interesting. Um, and then just uh, in this in this chapter, I'm also really looking at appropriation. Um, I'm looking at gender. I'm looking at a lot of different things in relation to his work. So yeah, it's, it's in, it's a tricky cause I'm at the same time, I'm kind of always kind of trying to protect him, <laughs> but at the same time, be truthful in my analysis, which it's a good combination because if I get into something that I'm feeling like, I don't know that I want to say that it kind of forces me to look at it in a broader context. And then it kind of help it kind of helps the analysis. And actually, as I say that out out, loud I think that was also true in making Broadway dance because what I didn't want to do in the book was be um catty or um uh judgmental about the choreography I wanted to I wanted to really present it um through the lens of analysis as much as I could without getting personal in a sense about it and and that was good because coming up through the business as I did, I mean, I certainly have experienced that kind of judgment, cattiness, uh, offhanded remarks. Um, so a lot of times that's in my head. And what I, and if I, that starts to come into my head, then I kind of try to redirect it into something that can be more, more scholarly, honestly. Um, and that's a, that's a great process, actually. It's almost like I'm with my writing, I'm not really coming from a purely scholarly aspect. I didn't go to college right out of school. I didn't do a degree in dance studies right away. I didn't, I never got a PhD. So the, my perspective is a little different, I think, from people who came up through that route yeah. have a different perspective than I do. So I'm always trying to embrace 
the kind of real life, real profession experiences that I've had um, and kind of maneuver them into scholarship. Yeah. And do you mind, uh, if, if you would rather not, I can take out this question, but would you mind elaborating a little bit on the Three Penny Opera? And uh, sure. Um, you know, John Dexter was in a bad way. Um, John Dexter was notoriously difficult. Yes. Uh, but, and Peter had done another show with him. Peter had done a show called One Night Stand. Oh, yeah. Um, with John Dexter, which I think ran one night. It was, it was a real hot mess, that show. <laughs> um, but so Peter kind of had a good relationship with John. John asked him to do Three Penny Opera. And honestly, Peter was the wrong person for Three Penny Opera. You know, Peter's, Peter's whole experience of dance was joy, joyous. Um, he was an extremely upbeat person. And, you know, Three Penny Opera, it's Brechtian. I mean, it's dark and it's cynical. And it really, it wasn't a great match for Peter's talents, first of all. Second of all, uh, Dexter was really in a bad way. He died shortly after the show. Um, I think he was just sick, did not feel well. And on top of that, he could be, you know, nasty. Um, and then Sting, you know, who on paper sounds like a great idea, it just sort of didn't work. Um, he's so, obviously, he's so brilliant and he's such a brilliant, um, you know, mega rock star and a brilliant writer. Somehow the format of the musical, I just don't think anybody found a way to let him do what he did. I don't know that it's necessarily a bad idea to cast him as Mac the Knife. He's definitely got that danger. But John Dexter, he, he kind of directed it as a kind of standard production of Three Penny Opera. And I think, and maybe he just didn't have the energy at that point in time to do anything else with it. I mean, you need like a Daniel Fish who's going to come in and remake that show for this particular you know, star personality. So I think that that was kind of a core issue. Um, and it was back in 19, when was that show? 19? I think 89. 89, yeah, yeah late 80s. You know, and at that point, Broadway was not doing anything, you know, along the lines of like a Daniel Fish or, or these kind of directors that are working now. Um, so there was, it wasn't even in the air. It wasn't in the ethos. It, th that would not have happened. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, Sting, you know, Sting was a big star. He liked to try and do, he kept saying, I love trying new things. I mean, that was kind of his outlook on the whole thing. So it didn't really phase him one way or another that it wasn't going well. And I think that maybe because he didn't really know how musicals were created, the rehearsal periods of musicals, how they went and how previews went. I think that he maybe missed a lot of cues that it was going downhill fast. Um, but I don't know if he could have done anything about it. I mean, it would have required like an entire rehaul of the production. Any, and like I said, I don't think in 89 that was even 
could have. I don't think anybody would have known what to do with that joke. And then on top of it, you just had Dexter, who was just mean. I mean, just out and out mean. He was mean to everybody, including Sting. And uh, everybody was just trying to hang on and get through it. And my father had, prior to that show, had gone through a period where he had lost his hearing completely. Nobody quite knew how or why, but he did. So when he came back, he had recently gotten the hearing back. Um, so he was really, uh, also, I think not up to speed, um, and certainly not up to dealing with this John Dexter, who was so different from the time he'd worked with him before. So it was, it was unfortunate. It was a phenomenal cast. Um, Jeff Blumenkrantz was great in it. David Schechter, Josh Mustel was in it, um, the women were amazing. Maureen McGovern, Kim Criswell, um, Georgia Brown. My God. Brilliant, brilliant performer. I had done Carmelina with her, um, which my father had also choreographed. I was in it. And um, she, she was truly spectacular on stage, Georgia Brown. And she was really great in Three Penny Opera. Uh, she totally understood this. She's probably the the person on that stage more than anybody who understood it. And Ethel Eichenberger, I hope I'm saying that right. He was also it was it was it, Dexter put together a phenomenal cast. He just I'm I don't know I don't know I didn't know his work well enough to really be able to analyze what went wrong. Other than the fact I think he felt bad. I felt think he felt sick and he just kind of couldn't make it happen. Yeah. And so I'd love to um, to ask you more about Carmelina as well and Jose Ferrer and Alan J. Lerner also involved in that. <laughs> That's a very long time ago. I don't know how much I remember. Um, I was just a dancer in the show. Uh, it was the story. It's the Mamma Mia story. It's the, um, I forget what the movie was based on. Buenos Aires, Mrs. Something. Yeah. I can yeah. about the three GIs all who have relations with this woman and she gets pregnant and nobody knows who the father is and they go back to meet her Um, great cast again a very old fashioned show Burton Lane and Alan J. Lerner who were not getting along the collaboration they did not enjoy seemed to enjoy working together I think that was a problem Uh, Jose Ferrer who I don't really have much memory of in terms of his work um I don't think at that point in time I was really like paying that much attention to direction. Um, and my father's numbers, you know, they, they, he didn't have that much to do that was particularly interesting. It was just really old fashioned. Uh, I guess it was the late 70s, early 80s. It was 79. I think. 79, wow. Um, yeah. It was a weird period of time. And the, the 70s were a weird period. Things were getting really, um, I think that's around the period. Well, New York City was a mess. There was deficit and recession and everything else. And President Ford told New York to drop dead. It was bad. (laughs) And um, the the theater was really had gone under. And there wasn't a lot of new work. I think it was a real period, looking back, and I think it was a real period of transition. And a lot of those brilliant composers and lyricists like Alan J. Lerner and Burton Lane 
were kind of the old guys then and still doing it and something else new had to happen. And there's a great, it's a, got some great songs in it, the show. It just, it just completely tanked. It was just way too old fashioned. Yeah. And so you fulfilled the role of the dance captain on that production. So I did. We only ran about two weeks. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't remember. Um, so I didn't really have to do much. <laughs> I think my father, when I think back, he really gave me a lot of responsibility, maybe too soon. Um, I think there was some resentment from the other dancers that I was the dance captain. Um, but I, again, I did have that ability to see and I could teach choreography and I could clean choreography. So I wasn't a completely inappropriate pick, but I was awfully young. I yeah. think I was... I would have been 21. So that's young to be a dance captain on a Broadway show, I think. Um, and I think I actually, because I was so desperate to hold a rehearsal, even though we only ran two weeks, I think I called an understudy rehearsal so that I could at least do it once. <laughs> but yeah, I, I must have had all the notes and I, I don't think I have any of that stuff anymore. I'm curious to know, how do you notate choreography? Mm. Well, like most dance captains, choreographers, I kind of have my own scrawl. Um, there is lava notation, <clears throat> but lava notation is difficult because you have to really be trained in it. And it's a very particular system. It doesn't really work for all kinds of dance. It's limited. And a lot of the people who can read it and write it are not really dancers, so they can't demonstrate it. So that's a problem that I've come across, I guess with Dance Machine, I don't know of anywhere else, where, I'd, where a lava notator would come in with notes and then get up and start to demonstrate and you couldn't see the choreography because they, they weren't really dancer dancers. So what most of us do is have kind of a system of our own. So, you know, I tended to, because I don't read music, I would always take all, take the numbers and break them down into counts. So if there's a dance break in our, you know, elongated dance instrumental section, I break it down into my own dancer counts. And then I know what the sections are and how, what I want to happen in each section. So then using that, within that, then I would write out, you know, literally step right, step left, step right, 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 left with and one and two and three and a four. <laughs> it's terrible. It's a terrible system. And it would get me through the pre-production and into the rehearsal well enough that I could get it onto the dancers. And then once it's on the dancers, then I'd start working on the dancers. But if I was recreating something, that's harder. Yeah. Because it would be really hard. Like if I looked back at my notes now, I don't think I could tell you one lick of what any of it was. So I'm guessing on Carmelina, I mean, I was so young on Carmelina, I bet a lot of it was just in my brain. I bet it wasn't even that written down. Yeah. I think I just knew it back then. I mean, the difference between 
1979 Carmelina, and then when I did Smile, which must have been like 86 maybe, and I was the assistant choreographer to Mary Kite. And by then, and I did this on Three Penny Opera too, I was the assistant choreographer, the dance captain, and the emergency swing. Oh. So that's what they would do back then because we they didn't have associates. If it was now, I would just have been an associate and I would have just taken care of the choreography. But then there was not that position. So in order to keep you on the show, they had to make you the emergency swing and the dance captain. You couldn't be the assistant and be like the dance captain and the assistant. So on both those shows, that's what I was. And I remember on Smile, <laughs> it was a big show. It had bunch of women, right? It was a beauty pageant and all these women. And I was covering like a bunch of them. In the event that the other two swings were on, I would go on. And I remember just being terrified that I would have to go on because by then I was really not performing anymore. I didn't want to have to do it. And I had a rough time remembering it, remembering it all. But I think by in 79, I had my dancer brain was more with it. And I could really kind of not just, you just recalled it when you're, th when you're that young. And I'd love to ask you about working with the great Howard Ashman on Smile. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, Howard was a lovely, lovely man. Uh, Smile was a rough experience. We did it first for the West Bank um, West Bank down in the village as a workshop. Um, and the workshop was really successful. Mary Kite, who was the choreographer, had done tintypes. That was her baby. And she was great at small, working on a small show and a small budget. So she could make something out of nothing just through staging and imagination. And she was very tight with Howard. I don't remember how or why, but they were very close. And then of course, we have Marvin Hamlish, uh, who was of course highly experienced and whatnot. Um, and the show, we did it for the workshop and the workshop was dark. The film, the original film is very dark, very cynical. Uh, and the, sh and the workshop was dark and cynical. And then it got a lot of attention from the workshop. They decided to make the transfer to Broadway to produce it. And, and they, they pulled away from the darkness of it. And that was, I think, its downfall. <clears throat> because suddenly, suddenly they, they had so all this money and the set was immense it was and it had these towers that came in and out and it was all kind of baby blue and baby pink and just elaborate that um and costumes by william ivy long that were great but really heavily heavily designed and here, when we had done it in the workshop, it was just, you know, pretty much street clothes and yeah. just the story. And it's an interesting story and disturbing. And then suddenly they turned it into Barbie's dream house. And I remember sitting in the 
in the audience with the other two swings. And when we started tech in Washington, we tech, no, Baltimore. And we started and we just all looked at each other and we were just like, oh no, now we're in trouble. And it just misfired. And Howard and Marvin were getting ready to go out to California to do work on a Disney animated film, which ended up being The Little Mermaid, but Marvin ended up not doing it. And I remember we all were sitting around saying, they're going to do a Disney film? Who does Disney animation any? What a terrible idea. <laughs> and then they really had a lot of issues. They did not get along. Their collaboration was not working. And so Marvin ended up not doing it. And Howard went on to great fame and fortune with all those Disney animated films. Um, and Howard, I think he just had too many responsibilities. He wrote the book, the lyric, I think he wrote the book also, the lyrics and the music, and he was directing. And he had up until then done smaller shows. You know, um, I remember seeing Bessel, uh, Little Shop Horrors. What a fantastic, that was just fantastic downtown in that small theater. I think he just hadn't had enough practice on a big show to take on, to wear all those hats. And I think it was just too much for him. He never lost his cool. He was lovely throughout. Um, I vaguely remember there being arguments with Marvin, but he never took it, um, Howard never took it out on cast. If anything, Howard seems sort of befuddled by yeah. why is this not working? And Mary Kite, who I think was super talented, and certainly what she did with Tin Types was fantastic. She was the wrong person for the show. It needed, like, honestly, like Tommy Toon or somebody who could just do big, splashy numbers. Yeah. And that was not Mary. Mary was, it was sensitive, it was thoughtful, which is why it worked, I think, in the, in the workshop. So again, you know, a lot of times when these shows don't work, it's because the talent of the team or the cast, this can also be good, the cast, is not matched to the project. Yeah. So, and I think that that really happened on, on Smile. Certainly with Mary, I think she was just not the right person for the show, despite her being super talented. And Howard, I just think he wore too many hats. I just don't think he could, I, I, I don't think, that's a, that's a fairly impossible job to do all those things. And I think he wasn't, he didn't, hadn't had enough experience in big shows. Um, and even if he had, I still think it's too many hats. Yeah. And I remember Michael Bennett came in when we were in Baltimore, watched the show, uh, I remember the one comment <laughs> that at least I heard that Michael Bennett said was, there are two boys in the, in the play, teenagers, and they're kind of running around peeking in at the pageant girls and carrying on. And Michael Bennett's, one of his comments was, the two boys should have a number. And I remember when somebody told me that it was like, absolutely, that's exactly what should happen. If those boys had a number, that would have been so phenomenal. But, you know, that was Michael Bennett. He knew, he had such experience in showbiz know-how. 
you know, on big shows. Yeah. That he just he could he just couldn't know. You know, he didn't come. He was not well at the time. So that, tragically so he didn't come in and work on the show but he get did give some notes and i know tommy toon gave some notes too one of which was to get rid of all of william ivy long's costumes oh. which was a really tough situation uh for william ivy long who had done all of these you know gorgeous palette of costumes um but i think that what he was Bonding to was the production design elements did not suit the show. So, you know, as hard as those things are to swallow, I think probably Tommy Toon had a point. Yeah. You know, when that when a show goes south like that and just everybody's just frantic and trying listening to everybody. And if you don't have that strong person at the helm who can keep things directed in that kind of pressure, I mean, terrible pressure, um, then it, it, it's inevitable, inevitably, it's probably not gonna succeed. Yeah, but um, Smile, I'd be curious, because Smile is still a score that's beloved by many people. Do you think that it could work in a production now and would you even want to attempt something like that? I would not. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I, I have too much history with it. But um, sure, maybe, uh, why not? You know, I think it's always, uh, you know, again, I mentioned Daniel Fish earlier, you know, what he did with that revival of Oklahoma, he remade that show. Um, it was masterful what he did, you know, and people had problems with it and that's fine. But even if you have problems with it, I don't think you can take away how masterful that direction was. He reinvented the show with basically not changing a word or a lyric. So if somebody can do that to something as classic and well-known as Oklahoma, um, it would seem to me that somebody could do something with Smile. It would also be interesting, and I don't know what kind of rights situation there is with this, but it would be interesting to go back to the workshop and if there's the workshop script, I'm sure I don't have any of that stuff anymore, but there were a lot of people in that show and I bet somebody still got the workshop script. For, if, for a director, you'd have to really be impassioned about this show, but maybe to look at the workshop script and what, what ultimately was and see if there's a way to you know, combine them. I think that would be a really fascinating project for somebody because there was, as I said, you know, Everybody did a great job on the workshop, and maybe it would be just a, really a matter of, you know, doing it smaller. You know, like doing an Atlant Atlantic theater, you know, somewhere that does smaller, interesting work. So I'm curious to ask you um, about revivals, because both of the shows that you choreographed on Broadway were revivals. And so when you're doing a revival, how much do you look at the original and how much do you look to sort of reinvent the? Well, with Most Happy Fella, I didn't look at all because there really was nothing to look at. Um, and honestly, with Once Upon a Mattress, I didn't really look either. Um, and there was there was a, a televised version of it. Um, I prefer to not look because it influences me and 
so many of these artists were so brilliant that, you know, it would be hard for me to not borrow. Um, so I don't really look, although on some shows, like Robin's shows particularly, Gypsy, for instance, um, those musical numbers are a roadmap. It's really hard to do anything that's not structurally Rob, what Robin set up, unless you get new dance arrangements. If you get new dance arrangements, then you can have a real new take on something. But if you don't, they're really locked tight. And even if you don't know what it was, and even if you can't see what it was, it still tells you what to do, those dance arrangements that they did. They still tell, really tell you what to do. So on the one hand, um, you know, Happy Fellow was good because nothing really existed. The choreography wasn't known. I think Danya Krupska choreographed it originally. Um, so I had a lot of free reign on that one. I didn't feel burdened too much. Um, on Mattress, it was harder because Joe Layton had choreographed it originally, and Joe Layton was very, very good at doing those kind of numbers. That whole show was kind of um, comic sketches. Yeah. You know, requires a virtuosic comedian. Um, and the numbers, you know, what I'm good at, what I was always very, very good at was integrating numbers into the libretto, giving a reason for people to dance. And in Mattress, you don't really need that. You don't really need to have that. You just needed, you just needed to create fun, upbeat, comic numbers, which was not really my strength. Yeah. And so with a show like Once Upon a Mattress, what is it like to be doing a show around sort of a big personality like Sarah Jessica Parker was at that time? And is? Um... Well, she, I think it was before Sex and the City. Oh, I think she was known, certainly. Um, and she was kind of always the critic's darling. Um, but she wasn't, she wasn't really like a big star presence. She just doesn't, she didn't really have that kind of, I, I don't know her anymore, but I haven't had any contact with her, but she wasn't that kind of a personality. Um, she really was there to do the work. Um, you know, and I think, you know, with her, super incredibly talented, wonderfully talented, you know, you don't need me to tell her, tell you that, but she, I don't know that she was cast properly for that show. Um, and that, that worked against that show. In addition to the fact that Jerry Gutierrez, who I absolutely revered and was one of the most, I think probably the most brilliant director I worked with ever, that was a, not a good show for him. And I don't think it was a good show for me. Yeah. I think that whole show was just misfired. Yeah. I don't think you could, you couldn't really point finger at anybody. It was just kind of, it just was not going to work with that team. Yeah. And so how involved are you in the casting of your shows? Do you like to always be in the room or? Um, yeah. I mean, you're always in the, the choreographer is always there from the get go. Um, you know, your input 
it depends. It's a very hierarchical art form. Uh, the direct, the producer, of course, is involved in the casting um, choices, um, and the director, and the composer, lyricist, book writer. They probably have the most say. Uh, choreographer then folds into that. If it's a specifically dance show, then I would have more say. Um, but it it is. It's a real negotiation casting because, um, like, for instance, I did um, Ragtime at Paper Mill Playhouse, and we cast uh, Betsy Wolf as um, the one on the swing. Um, I'm oh, just, um, Evelyn Nesbitt. I, oh, yeah. Evelyn Esbeth. Um, and she's usually cast as a dancer, dancer. She had always been cast as a dancer, dancer. And Betsy moves great, really, really great. And of course, sings out of this world and is a wonderful actor. But she's not like a dancer, dancer. And she came in and I love her, had worked with her prior to that in the Muni, loved her, thought she would be great. And, it, and Stephen Flaherty and David Loud was the musical director, and they were so thrilled because she, vocally she's so strong. They were so thrilled that I wanted her because they thought, oh, we're they gonna have to have the dancer dancer who's not gonna sing as well, <laughs> you know, which is sometimes the case. So, you know, sometimes it works out that way, but other times, you know, I might've really wanted the dancer dancer who was not the strongest singer in the room and then the musical director has to has to kind of um you know take take a step away and kind of let you have but then you know you i'll have to if there's a dance number and i need a particular kind of dancer and there's somebody who doesn't you know sing as well then i have to give that dancer up for one who maybe dances a little less but We'll give the musical director what they need vocally. So it's always a negotiation. And the choreographer is certainly in there. Um, what I was saying about the hierarchy, it's a very hierarchical system. And yet, if the choreographer has more experience and more box office than, let's say, the director, then the choreographer might get more say. Yeah. It just sort of always depends, like who are the most powerful people in the room? And those are normally the people who have the track record to make the money, to get people in the seats. Yeah. And, and I certainly never had that kind of passion. Oh, yeah. And so with Most Happy Fellow, you were working with us, Spiro Malas and Liz Larson. And so were they dancers? Did dancing come naturally to them? And if not, how well, did Spiro you? was not. <laughs> Yeah. Spiro was like a big opera guy. Um, and I didn't really have to do anything with Spiro. I mean, I, I was, you know, in the room and around with him all the time. He was great in the role. Uh, Liz was a very, very strong mover. And when we did it, um, Scott Wara did the Broadway production. And Guy Stroman did it up at good speed. Um, they both, Guy particularly, moved really, really well. Uh, dancer Lee. And... Scott was a great mover too. So um, I was able to do a lot with the, all of them. 
They were great. And they were the main ones. Oh, and then I had the three cooks, the chefs, Mark Latito and Buddy. Uh, they were they were terrific, those guys. And they could really move. Buddy Crutchfield and, uh, God, I forget his name. Wonderful, another wonderful performer. Um, and they danced a lot, actually. And how you were mentioning that you have this skill for like um, making the dance come naturally out of the story. And so how did you sort of use that within the context of The Most Happy Fella? I did a lot of research on Tarantella. <laughs> a lot of research on Tarantella, which was a lot. I also always loved doing the research. Um, but I that I did. And then I did um, for Big D, I kind of researched Texas Two-Step and different kinds of you know, dances of the West, um, square dances, that kind of stuff. Um, so that the dancing appears to emerge from the characters naturally, or what we used to say organically, the number emerge organically. Um, so that not to give choreography that it seemed like, da like dancing that people within that, within the play would not have been able to do. This is what Robbins was genius at. I mean, if you look at Fiddler on the Roof, you just look, it just looks like you could jump up on the stage and join in. It, it just looks so improvisational and it's so highly choreographed. Um, he, he was for sure the best at that. And I think, I mean, many, many choreographers, I could list many that are very good at it, but I think Bennett too. And of course, what Bennett hit with a chorus line in creating an actual experience where the dancers were dancers at an audition, dancing the dance that they would do at the audition, you know, it was just layered with um, kind of a, it was very honest and believable. I remember when I saw the show down at the public the first time, I remember sitting, and I must have been only about, I don't know, 16. And I remember at one point, like kind of being kind of surprised and thinking, oh my God, I'm at a show. It's like it pulled me in so, so intensely that I kind of lost that I was an observer. That's never happened to me before or, or since. Yeah. And I would love if I would, could, I always wish I could remember what the moment was that I came back because I always think it would be interesting to explore a chorus line and figure out, you know, like, was there something wrong structurally in that moment that it pulled me back to reality? But I remember like being well into the show and then suddenly just like, oh my God, this is a show I'm watching. <laughs> And so uh, to speak of Jerome Robbins, you um, had the task of sort of reinventing Robbins. Um, you did Gypsy uh, three times with, with John Worley, Betty Buckley, and Karen Mason. And so I'd be curious to know how you sort of approached the choreography because the original is so famous. Really hard. Um, I mean, I researched vaudeville so that I would have that movement lexicon. Um, all I need is the girl. Um, that's probably the easiest of the numbers because, you know, it's it's basically just this, you know, showbiz boy 
having a moment. The kid numbers are what's hard. <clears throat> and it looks easy because he did it so brilliantly. Um, <clears throat> but I remember when I did it at Paper Mill, Sondheim and Arthur Lawrence came. Oh, wow. And I think somebody told me, somebody had spoken to them afterwards, and they were complained that the numbers, the kids' numbers, were too, they looked too professional and proficient, which was really interesting to me because at that point in time, I don't think I paid enough attention to the fact that, and when I subsequently did research on Robbins, Robbins created those dances as if they were created by Mama Rose. And in, my, in the book, in Making Broadway Dance, I, I found some research where Robbins wrote um, that the reason that June left, the reason that June leaves the act and goes on her own is because she didn't feel that Ro Mama Rose had the taste to be able to really present her in a tasteful manner. And so if you think of how to do those numbers in bad taste, but still make them entertaining for the audience who's paid money to come and see the show, yeah. that's hard. That's really hard. And that, that complicated process of all that thinking that Robbins put into that, those numbers, uh, I certainly was not capable of that. And, and if I were to do the show again, I would do those numbers very differently with this information. Because what you think they're supposed to be is just these really spectacular vaudeville numbers that got this big hand and showed off this baby June, which he did but he was able to do it in a manner that still the numbers are kind of cheesy and tacky. And then of course you get the humor then yeah, out of the cheesiness and tackiness of it. And that was another thing that Robbins was spectacular at was comedy. You know, he just, he was just brilliant at com comic dance. Very, very hard to do. And so how did these, um, since you did do it three times, and of course, Mama Rose is a very important sort of character, uh, of course, um, how did the productions change depending on who was in that role? Um, well, with Worley, honest, in all honesty, I don't really remember that production. It was at Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera, which meant we rehearsed in a week. You started on Monday and you opened the following Monday. So I don't even know how much I was spent time with her. I remember very, very little about that. Uh, when I did it with Karen Mason and Peter Flynn directed, he did everything with Mama Rose. He did everything with Karen. Um, Karen was very good. Um, it was hard to do with the Muni because the Muni is such a hugely wide expanse. It's a huge outdoor theater in St. Louis. Um, and it was hard to get any kind of the intimacy of that show and the intimacy of those numbers. What you tended to do at the Muni, I did 13 seasons at the Muni, and what you tended to try to do was explode the numbers bigger. And it's hard to do that with Gypsy because there's only so many kids yeah. in the show. 
Um, and that brilliant moment, which I always would do, it's in the script, where the uh, newsboys, they go into the military number where the kids become, one is Uncle Sam, and one is represents the Navy and the Army, and they grow up in the course of the number where they put the strobe light effect on, and the strobe light effect, you're, you have the, the, the kids doing the trenches, um, in such a pattern that at the end of it, all the little kids are gone and the lights come up and the, the strobe stops and you have the adult kids or the teenage, the uh, teenage kids, and then it blacks out. That's such a joke. It was really hard to do with the Muni because it requires that you're doing it within the proscenium. So the kids have to be able to disappear into the proscenium yeah. and you couldn't get there. <laughs> you couldn't make it to the stadium and the amount of music yet because you had to go and go and go. So somehow or other, I think I brought in some flats or something and did some kind of thing where, you know, it sort of kind of worked. Um, but yeah, Karen was very good. And then Betty Buckley, I mean, Betty Buckley sang the crap out of it. It was amazing, amazing vocally. Um, and Mark Waldrop directed that one, I believe. And... Um, it was good. I mean, I think it was good. Uh, it's hard for me to remember specifically. I, I know Betty, you know, I worked with her. I remember working with her on uh, Rose's Turn. Um, there's actually, that's on YouTube, actually. It's kind of, you, you know, it's like done somebody under somebody's coat or something. So it's not a great version of it. But she was pretty great. She brought a lot of... Um, was a very different kind of Mama Rose. She's more, um, she's got a sex sexiness to her, a sexuality to her that that is not usually maybe as apparent in Mama Rose. Um, and maybe it conflicts with what, what um, Louis, with Louise having to be the sexy one. Um, I think that that was kind of an interesting piece of of what that she she played her like a woman who was interested in men, and I don't know that that was even though you have Herbie Herbie is such a um, kind of a wet noodle that the balance you know that's the interesting thing about revivals they're designed for particular talents. And then when other talents come in and change it, it can throw the balance of the show. Um, and as spectacular as Betty Buckley is, um, and I thought she was good in the very good in the show. I wonder if if that worked as well as it would have worked with somebody like Tyne Daly, yeah, actually, who was so really wonderful in it. I think I also saw Angela Lansbury do it. Oh. I don't remember it very well, though, to be honest. The show is so great. I think it must be so much fun for performers to, um, certainly for the Roses, to dig into, into that character. Um, and it's just hard with shows because I think Someone as super talented as Betty Buckley coming in really requires almost a rewrite or a rethinking. And when you're doing these revivals, there's no time for that. 
Yeah. You know, and then the estate is involved, and they won't let you change anything. And that's uh, the estates should do what they need to do. I don't want mean to sound like I'm criticizing the estates. It's just that it makes the act of if the if the estate's not all in for changes and do what you want, then it's very hard for directors and choreographers and designers to really and and stars to really reinvent these shows unless all elements are willing to be re-envisioned. Um, and so on the revivals that I worked on, with the exception of Most Happy Fellow, which I think was just really not very well known, um, but the others that I've worked on, it's um, I've never really had that opportunity to like really you know go in there and remake it. Yeah. That wasn't even really an that it wasn't really even that much of an option. I mean, people are only doing that recently, which I think is fantastic. I love it to see. You know, I just love to see what um, Daniel Fish did with Oklahoma. I don't. I didn't love all of it to watch it, but my hats off to him. I think he did a, a, a spectacular job on that show. Yeah, and I hope that more people will. And I'm very upset that I did not get to see West Side Story. I had tickets for the night of the shutdown. Wow. So I didn't see it. So I'm hoping that Toft at Lincoln Center videoed it so that I could maybe see it there. And so how did you um, get started teaching at the Manhattan School of Music? Mm -hmm. How did that happen? Well, I had taught, I taught, from very early age, um, when Lee Theodore with Dance Machine, she developed, she had a, a school at the Harkness House on the Upper East Side, and she taught classes um, in musical theater, dance, and Nanette Charisse taught ballet classes, and there were, I think, some other classes. Karen Baker, I think, taught tap, and there were some other classes, um, and then Lee had some choreography gigs at one point. She was had to be away and she asked me to teach the classes for her. And she, before she left, she gave me like, she had two classes a day. And I think the really popular one, I think was the afternoon one. I can't remember exactly, but anyway, the one that was less popular, she gave me. And she would come and watch me teach. And she kind of coached me and kind of taught me how to teach. Then she left and she left me with my classes. And the woman who was kind of running the school had a connection out at, uh, with a Glevsky Ballet at CW Post. And she brought me out to teach theater dance out there. And then she had a colleague who had a connection at Hofstra University and they got me into Hofstra University to teach a course in musical theater dance. That was before I even had a college degree. Um, so I really slipped in under the wire on that. And the course was successful. It was just one course. I was an adjunct. But it kind of started me on the academic thing. And through the years, I picked up more teaching and I taught at Barnard, continued at Hofstra, and I taught at Princeton. Um, and different versions of kind of musical theater, some were lecture-based, some were lecture and hybrid lecture and dance, some were just dance. And 
then I went through a period where my daughter was about to go to college and I was in the city and I thought, I don't really need to stay in the city at this point. And I wasn't choreographing that much at that point. And I wanted something steady and stable because I wanted to be able to, you know, get my daughter through college. And so I went on the job searches. I found a bunch of different schools. I just happened to luck out. There were a bunch of schools that were looking for exactly what I could do. And I got shortlisted at like five schools, started going across the country, you know, I was going to say auditioning, interviewing. And Indiana University was the first school that came through and offered me a position, a full-time position, tenure track position. So I was, you know, thrilled. And it was close enough to New York that I didn't have to go all the way out to California or somewhere else, whatever. And it was Bloomington and it was my scholar friends all said, oh, it's a great school and it's a, you know, research one university. So I went and my daughter ended up going to Kalamazoo College. So we were really close, which was great. She was only like a five hour drive away. And um, I stayed there for six years <clears throat> and it was great experience. I loved teaching there. I loved my colleagues there. I loved my students. So wonderful students at that, in that program. And I ended up taking over the program, the longtime head who'd been there, I think 25 years, George Pinney, had started it and run it successfully for all those years. He retired and he kind of handpicked me to take over for him. And I ran it for a year and a half. And in the course of running it, the Manhattan School of Music job popped up and I wanted to come back, not necessarily to New York in all honesty, but I wanted to come back to the East Coast. Yeah. And I thought, well, you know, I'll apply, what the heck. And they, they hired me. And so I came back in 2018, 2018. Um, and it was a new program. Uh, it had two years under prior leadership. That person left because of personal reasons. And I came in and inherited to your program. And of course, whenever you go in to take anything over, you're going to want to redo it, remake it. <laughs> so I spent, I've spent the last, you know, almost four years remaking the program and um, living through the pandemic. Because I did a year and a half, only a year and a half of leading that program. We hadn't even graduated a class yet and the pandemic hit. So that second half of my second year was all on Zoom and that poor class, the class of 2020 graduated into the pandemic. Yeah. And then last, then the following year, again, graduated into pandemic. So, you know, all these schools do these senior showcases where you prepare, you know, all year or half the year, however anybody does it. And then you take them to a studio in the city and you present to these to industry professionals so that they can get an agent and be seen by casting people and directors and whoever. And um, the first class had an online um, an online showcase. We're giving them another one this spring, a live one. And then the following year, we did a really great um, video for that class. 
Um, so they had a, a really good thing. Um, so now this year, hopefully, well, we'll do the 2020s again, which will be nice for them. And then we hopefully will the 2022, the class of 2022 will actually graduate into the industry. Um, but it's been terrible for these students all across the country because they're graduating into an industry that does not exist. There's no work. So it's a tough, tough time for them. And we just keep telling them, you know, it's going to come back. It's definitely going to come back. And some of them, even last summer, things were coming back and they were able to work and do things. So it is improving. Of course, now we've got this damn Omicron thing, which is kind of mixing us up again. But hopefully, you know, based on what Fauci and everyone is saying, it's going to, you know, fade quickly if we're lucky and we'll get back on track. Yeah. But, um, it's been a real lesson in how to how to help the students not lose hope lose steam you know it's very hard what these students are trying to do to enter into into musical theater now there's a glut of talented people vying for jobs and um i just hope that you know i'm just very conscious of keeping their keeping them positive and doing everything I can to let them know that it will come back and that they will work. And so this, um, this academic work of yours brings us to your book. And so how did the idea for that first happen? And then how long has it been since the idea until now, the publication? It was a long time because I, I started it, I started thinking about it when I was in grad school and doing my thesis, which I did on Agnes DeMille and dance modernism. And that kind of started me on thinking, you know, I think that this material, this choreography can sustain this level of interrogation. And so I, as I said earlier, you know, I was not finding any literature that was hefty in terms of scholarship on these different choreographers. So, and the way that I was looking at DeMille in the thesis and pulling in dance modernism of the period and really trying to unpack her methodologies um, was something that I had not seen anybody really do. So I went, I got involved, I guess I was teaching at Princeton at that point and Stacy Wolf, was a wonderful musical theater scholar, was out at Princeton. And I think somehow, somehow I got asked to write a chapter for an Oxford University Press uh, collection on musical theater. And it was with Raymond Knapp and Stacey Wolf. And I think what had happened was I had sent in a proposal to there's a conference called um, Stage Screen. Oh gosh, I'm not going to remember it exactly. Um, st screen Stage something, and they do a conference every year. It's a great conference, and they're associated with the Musical Theater Journal, Musical Theater Studies Journal. And I, I made a proposal to speak at the conference. It was happening in Manhattan. And I never heard back. And I thought, okay, well, they're obviously not interested. So I went online 
because I wanted to go to it, the conference. And I'm looking through the selections and I see I'm listed. <laughs> and the conference was two days away. And I wrote and I said, I just saw that I'm listed. Are you expecting me to speak? <laughs> oh yes, oh yes, We're, we, we accepted your proposal. So I went into full blown <laughs> hyper action and I wrote the thing. And I had like the idea and like a sketch, but I like for two days solid, I wrote the thing for like a 20 to 30 minute talk. And I showed up, I did it. Raymond Knapp was in the audience, spoke to me after I spoke and said, we're doing this thing for Oxford University Press. I want to talk to you about it. And that's how I got it. And I got that chapter. And then through getting that chapter just goes to show you, do the work. <laughs> if I, I mean, I could have just said, oh, forget it. I can't get that together that fast. But it was like, no, I'm going to do it. And that, I'm glad I did. Um, and then I think through that, I was invited to be part of the Musical Theater Forum, which is a group of musical theater scholars, which includes Raymond Knapp, Liz Woolman, Stacy Wolf. Um, it's, there's about 10 of us, David Saverin, a wonderful, wonderful group of musical theater scholars. And I was invited to participate in their first meeting. And I was kind of like, oh, like I didn't know what I was doing or getting into. And I went out to Princeton and they had like this whole presentation and we kind of sat around and talked and everybody would present what they were writing and working on. And they would bring grad students and the grad students also participated. And then it was like, oh my God, you know, like I just got invited into this phenomenal group of writers. So then every year we meet now. And so I kind of got the swing of it <laughs> and realized that I should bring work and present it. And so it was to them that I first proposed the idea of the book. They were also, a bunch of them had worked with Oxford University Press and Norman Hershey, who is the editor there, who is in charge of all of these great dance and theater books. He's kind of formed this very interesting section of Oxford University Press that publishes these books. And I guess I sent him a proposal and he accepted it. And then it was a many years of writing a chapter, sending it to him, feedback, writing it again, you know, whatever. We kind of had a relationship. I kept bringing the stuff every year to the my musical theater forum and they kept encouraging me because they said, Liza, nobody's doing this nobody's writing about this nobody has this expertise in dance that you have that you can really do this so through their phenomenal encouragement it took me a long time like 10 years it took me and it was a lot of starting and stopping because i didn't have at iu after i was at iu for six years i guess after three i got tenure or i started the tenure process and got tenure and then I got tenure, took over the program, and left. <laughs> so while I was at the Research One institution, where I was getting funding for the summers to come to New York, and they'd give me some money, and I could do my research and work on the book, I lost all that. So I was like, I really was not in a 
position that a person who's writing a book, a scholarly book, is supposed to be in, where you work, where you get a sabbatical and you go away and you write the book. So, so I just kept chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. And then um, a couple of years ago, the Musical Theater Forum, my colleagues there said, Liza, you just published the book. Get the book published. Just do it now. Finish it. And I, Norman Hershey was already on board and we were working on it. And so then I just pushed through somehow. I got it done. Yeah. And that's, that was the trajectory of that. And as I said, it was, I really, I just did it because it's something I know about. I love the form and I want to position musical theater dance within the umbrella of dance studies. Yeah. And so this is probably a difficult question, but when you're writing a book like this, how do you choose who to exclude? Mm -hmm. Like I know one of the ones that I think was maybe most surprising was Tommy Toon. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a Tommy Toon book out right now. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, Kevin Winkler just wrote the Tommy Toon book, which I'm thrilled. And Kevin's terrific. Um, yeah, it was hard because you can't write about everybody. Yeah. Um, you have to find a way to narrow it down, particularly since what I was doing was new. Uh, and I was trying to fold a lot of information in. Um, I needed choreographers that offered me examples that I could make my case with. So while Tommy Toon was fabulous and great, he just didn't, it, it just didn't work for me to pull him into this book. Uh, other other choreographers maybe covered what he did. I mean, I think what Tommy Toon was great at was a kind of spectacle, um, a kind of, I mean, I think spectacle is a great word. He created spectacular dances with great, um, often what you might refer to as gimmicks, but I don't think gimmicks is a bad word. Um, they're very hard. It's very hard to do that. Um, but for me, what I was looking at more specifically, trying to look at more specifically was methodology and how the dances fit into the libretto. What that particular dramaturgical process was. And for me, Tommy Toon's work just didn't scream out examples for me to do that with. Yeah. Whereas um, somebody like Michael Bennett did. I mean, another choreographer that I left out that I have endless guilt about was Michael Kidd. Oh, yeah. I actually, yeah, I mean, I actually worked with Michael Kidd. I did a production of Music Man in 1979. We toured for nine months. Meg Bussert played Marianne and Dick Van Dyke played Harold Hill the dancing was out of this world and I loved him, but I couldn't, I couldn't find a way to give it. I give, I do mention him, but I couldn't find a way to kind of give him a big chunk because DeMille and Robbins kind of took up that airspace. Yeah. And I kind of felt like I had to move on to Fosse, who, you know, is endlessly fascinating <laughs> for many reasons. <laughs> And so you, as part of this book, you conducted a few interviews. And I wanted to ask you about 
a, a couple of them in particular because these are people who aren't who are no longer with us um that's uh george martin and uh jimsy delap and donald sadler i'd be yeah. curious to ask you about those in particular well ethel and george martin might no jimsy was the first one um jimsy i'd had a, a relationship with because of dance machine she was always around dance machine and she recreated all the mills work and she also taught classes she taught us a, a company class often she taught um so i went back with jemsey and jemsey and i also did a recreation of one of demille's very early works that she did in london i think it was in london when she was at the rambert school the ballet club and it was called dust and it was three women and it was about the it took place during the dust bowl uh, um period and we recreated i did all the research found the music got the pictures kind of laid it out there were like many many pictures that were almost like animation they were like in sequence and jemsey and i did that and we did a few things like that together um <clears throat> so she was the first one that i interviewed and i i found out a, a lot about her i knew a lot about jemsey already um, but that's at New York Public Library for, for the performing arts, as many of them are, so oh. people could listen to them. Um, and then George and Ethel, I think, were the second one I did, and I knew Ethel from the recreations of the Jack Cole material, and George was her husband, and they, I drove up to their house, like up by Bear Mountain or something, and they had me come in two times. They were just lovely and sweet, and they fed me lunch and couldn't have been nicer. Um, but what was fascinating about both of them was that Ethel had been in like way back, like in the rock at the Roxy. She had been a Roxyette, not a rocket, a Roxyette. Wow. And she and she had stories to tell about. I mean she she did some of the um who was the wonderful um, movie actress who did all the swimming? She had been, I think, in Olympics. Oh, oh, Esther Williams. Esther Williams. <laughs> Sorry. But Ethel had done was in the course of those swimming. She did swim. She she had a wild career. I talk about a choreographer in the book named uh, Gay Foster. Is that the right name that I'm saying? I think so. Um, who was at one of those big kind of like Radio City type places and um ethel had worked in that chorus too so ethel had a very interesting period in the 1930s when she was like a really a chorus girl like pre-demills even pre-balancing on broadway and then george had been at the jacob's pillow as a young young man you know he, he had he had you know, with Ted Sean and Ruth St. Dennis, they just had these amazing lives and then went on to work extensively with Jack Cole. So, and then, and, and then George also became a stage manager, a Broadway stage manager. So he had also that whole thing. But I just remember talking to the two of them. It was astounding to me, the scope of their careers. Um, and that they had worked in every theatrical medium you could imagine, including film. 
and television. And uh, they were very, very close with Jack Cole. So that was, they had a, they had very interesting insights about him. The thing about Cole was he was such a choreographer, truly a choreographer, dance person. He came out of Tent Sean and Ruth St. Dennis. He was highly trained and kind of made his mark in Hollywood films and, you know, what's considered to be very fluffy. But when you see Marilyn Monroe in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, that's all Jack Cole. Um, so he... he his his career trajectory was also interesting and why he didn't become why he didn't have a company why did he need to do concert work so they had interesting insights that's also that interview is also at the library i went twice because in the first one george sort of took over the conversation and it was also fascinating he was in dancing in the dark i mean he had a crazy career and and I, ethel didn't get to say much so i had to go back and then ethel was equally phenomenal um, and then Donald Sadler, I kind of, they already had an oral history on him at the library, but I was trying to get at his shows more specifically. And he had a close relationship with Robbins. Um, they were both original members of, um, of ballet theater before it was called American Ballet Theater when it was ballet theater. So he had a lot of interesting things to say about that. And he of course had done Wonderful Town choreographed Wonderful Town, which Robbins had come in and doctored as he did on so many shows of that period. And Donald Sadler's, his personality, he was very, he seemed to have a very kind of a gentleness to him, very open quality to him. Um, he didn't have resentment about Robbins coming in and working with him. He, he, he just felt, yes, come in. If you can help, help. He had a great quality and, of course, went on to have a very successful career. But all of the people that I've interviewed, and I've done quite a few, and then did more that are not at the library that I just did. I did Karen Baker for the book to have her talk about. She was in Coco. I had um, Bayark Leith spoke to me a few times. I think Bayark Leith, the first time I spoke to Bayark, I think, was in is at the library. But then I did another one to kind of dig in more specifically to Bennett. <clears throat> um, they're all unbelievably generous with their time, as I think you're finding, you know, with yeah. the work you're doing with this program. Um, you know, a part of it is, I mean, I think that we all love the form. It's not something we get to talk about in depth that much. And uh, when we do, we're just happy to have the opportunity and there's a lot of pride in the work that everyone has done. And because it is, or it was considered a disposable art form, I think that there is a constant kind of effort to legitimize it. And I think that by everyone wanting to do the interviews, making the time to do the interviews with me or you or whoever, you know, they're talking to, um, the generosity that they offer with their time. I think it's about that partly. I think it's about recording, getting something on the record that was not on, has not been put on the record. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so I'd love to ask what you found to be different about either talking to or studying uh, more modern choreographers, say like after the AIDS era, like Bill T. Jones or Stephen Hoggett. Yeah. That you talk about. Well, as I say in the book, I mean, I think that, you know, AIDS was so devastating to the industry. And I think that um, equally to the modern dance world, I mean, to the arts generally, and of course, Bilty Jones, who had a very, you know, tragic experience um, with AIDS with our, his partner, Arnie Zane, um, was able to enter into, well, I, I think it's a few things. I think that there was space for him to enter into musical theater because of the devastation and all of the wonderful up and coming choreographers who were no longer with us. Um, and I think the timing was right for a show like Spring Awakening. And the timing was right for what he could bring to a show like Spring Awakening. And I think what he did, you know, what he did was not particularly new in the dance world, but it was new on Broadway. Um, he, he took a very different approach to choreographing for musicals that was dance-centered, whereas dance had been moving in the direction of I mean, I think that because Robbins was so brilliant at integrating dance and making it look like it was improvised, I think that's a special skill. Not everybody could do that. And I think that the people, when people couldn't do it well, producers started to get nervous about it and didn't want that kind of choreography anymore. It kind of, it, it somehow, it just lost favor. They, if they couldn't do it at the level that he kind of, Robbins kind of ruined it for everybody. Like he did it so well that anybody else who was trying to do it, you know, it was hard to do it that well. And I think that made a space for something really new. And for the people who were up and coming, who were trained in the Robbins, you know, paradigm of musical theater choreography, like a Chris Chadman, because he passed, there became a gap where there weren't people who came, who made their way through the chorus like a Michael Bennett did and then did his own thing with musical theater. Um, so I think that both Pete Jones, he did that show, it worked like gangbusters and it kind of cracked open a little light into, oh, maybe we can do this differently. And then Stephen Hoggett came along. And Stephen Hoggett, I think, has had the biggest effect of what's currently happening on Broadway. Because he wasn't a dancer. Uh, he was an English major. Um, he started Frantic Assembly in, in England. And they hired all these, you know, really wild choreographers that worked with them from the concert world. And that's sort of how they learned choreography. <clears throat> and they created this, you know, they, they were part of the physical theater movement and devised theater. And they've brought that to 
you know, he's brought that to Broadway now. And now you can see the choreographers that were not trained that way, that were trained more kind of in the Robbins model or, or Bennett, let's say Bennett model. Um, you can see some of them trying to do this other thing. And it's tricky because it's not really where we live. Where we live, like um, somebody like Jerry Mitchell, who's so good with a book. I mean, he's just terrific with a book. He can really, he really knows how to build numbers out of the book. Um, you wouldn't want him to do the stuff that Stephen Hawking, you know, it's like apples and oranges, completely different thing. But st what Stephen Hogg is doing feels the freshest, I think, and feels the most contemporary. And that's when you get, you know, the choreographer who worked on Hades Town. You know, these new breed, or breed is the wrong word, new generation of choreographers who are coming up and into the field now. And of course, we've had this terrible period of being stalled. So it's going to be fascinating to see what happens after. Yeah. But the way they're working, which is not as interested really in developing movement that appears to be developed, that appears to be dance that the characters would dance in that moment in time. I mean, Stephen Hoggett, he kind of, kind of creates these Sometimes he does. I mean, in the last ship, he was kind of doing that. How would those people move at that period of time? But it's still very specific to him. Um, but in once, he creates these kind of movement gestures almost. It, it's, it's quite beautiful what he does, and it layers the meaning in a very different way than the choreographers pre-Bennett, Bennett and pre-Bennett, and even a bit after Bennett their relationship with movement text and song is is uh is really different yeah and so i i've kept you i know for two hours but i'd love to ask you a, a concluding question which is where do you think that musical theater dance is going and what do you think we can learn from some of the older masters like agnes de and robbins was it you know i don't know i don't know where it's going um I think that, you know, there are a bunch of really, really interesting people choreographing for the theater right now. Um, I think Camille Brown is fascinating what she's doing. I'm really curious to see how she continues to work and what she comes up with. Um, and I'm sure there will be more. Um, I think what's great about the form is how much it can absorb. It can really absorb anything. Uh, you know, people like Robbins, Robbins was so genius at being able, you know, he could choreograph The King and I and Fiddler and Gypsy and Billion Dollar Baby. You know, his, his knowledge of dance was so vast and the vocabularies that he had at his fingertips, he could just draw on. That's less so now. I think that choreographers are more kind of do what they do. Yeah. Um, so that'll be interesting to see how how that progresses. It, it, it's a it's um it's complicated by issues of appropriation that are now being addressed and thought about. Um, how will that affect hiring practices? 
um, the field of musical theater choreographers had been ver versatility, but that's very much a privileged stance. You know, I mean, white choreographers had the had the privilege to be versatile in many things and to be hired. So, you know, that's a level of privilege that we're moving away from. Yeah. So how do, how do choreographers sustain a career if the work is not as plentiful? So it's about equity. It's about making it an equitable field for everyone, which it has not been. So we're at a very interesting point um, in terms of how Broadway really can change and how how work gets gets created and how teams get put together. I mean, it has to change. It's all very, very positive. But I don't think we know yet what that's going to um, bloom. I think it's gonna, I think it's a very exciting to, time to be in the musical theater. And I think it will be very, very exciting work that comes out of this period. But I can't, I can't really predict. I mean, everything I see, I'm, you know, I, I'm loving what everybody's doing. And I just hope that there will continue to be, you know, the kind of opportunities that we're currently moving into more and more. I just hope that can, that continues. It's very important that that continues. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this interview. It's been so wonderful to talk to you and so, you're so welcome and congratulations on this work you're doing. I'm, I'm, you're doing a lot of my work for me. I appreciate your interviews. Okay. <laughs> Listeners, thank you for tuning in and remember to come back next time when I'm joined by one of Broadway's top musical directors, the great Ted Sperling. Among the many Broadway shows he has worked on include Falsettos, Sunday in the Park with George, My Fair Lady, Fiddler on the Roof, The King and I, My Favorite Year, Kiss of the Spider Woman, How to Succeed, The Full Monty, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, The Light in the Piazza, and South Pacific. He also appeared on Broadway in Titanic. In addition to all of this, Ted is the artistic director of Master Voices, under whose umbrella he has presented concerts of such musicals as Of the I Sing, let him eat cake and lady in the dark and on this coming thursday march 10th he will be conducting and presenting a concert of anyone can whistle at carnegie hall featuring vanessa williams elizabeth stanley and more so make sure you buy your tickets for that and remember to come back for the interview thanks for listening <laughs>